the Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. It is the Anton Savage Show with you through until 12 o'clock. Uh, as I said, Pat Rabbit, um, chairperson of Tusla, former leader of the Labour Party, has stayed with us. We're joined by Aideen Finnegan, audio producer with the Irish Times, and Hugh O'Connell, who is deputy political editor at the Irish Independent. And we start with what we have started with so many times before, which is the issue of housing. This time, Hugh, the Business Post is telling us that we are going to have to swallow the bitter pill that homeowners must accept that their values will drop. And not only that, they're going to have to wind their necks in when it comes to objecting to housing going in next door to them, even if they think services aren't sufficient. Yeah, this is an interview by uh, with Bob Jordan, the chief executive of the housing agency uh, by Killian Woods in the Business Post. And, and basically he's saying all of that and, and he's saying it, I guess, in the context of the political debate which broke out just before Christmas um, over Mary Lou McDonald's comments uh, that she'd like to, to get house prices down to €300,000, um, which drew a lot of criticism at the time from from the government, uh, from, from Leo Varadkar, who um, said it would push homeowners into negative equity. But Bob Jordan is making the point that, look, you know, in order to I don't know, solve the housing, solve the housing crisis might be a stretch, but certainly to make it better and to get more people uh, into homes and more people on the housing ladder, um, there is going to have to be a situation where housing becomes more affordable. Therefore, house prices will have to come down through the, the ramping up of supply. And obviously, you ramp up supply by building. Um, but part of the implication of the interview seems yeah. to be not just that the system needs to adapt to be able to people deliver housing to quicker. Adapt. Yeah, everybody needs to say, well, I don't want it, but I won't complain for the good of the nation. Yeah, so, so this idea of objecting to developments in your area um, because you're concerned about the, the drain on, on resources it might have or the drain on services, but also this idea, and this, and this idea has been knocking around for years of, of getting uh, older people who, whose children may have left the home, although that is increasingly not the case, uh, children living at home into, into their 30s because they can't get a house. Um, but this idea of downsizing and moving out of these large three, four-bed homes where... Uh, there's there's three or four beds that are there aren't or bedrooms I should say that that aren't being used and moving into smaller uh, houses or homes or apartments or whatever in order to free up housing stock for for families that you know, people with young families that need it. Aidan, do you hold out much hope for this outbreak of altruism where the elderly are going to move into homes that aren't their own and where we're all going to stop objecting to things we don't want? I hold out very uh, the bar is very low. Um, I, I I don't see it happening. I actually think it's a bit. I, you know, I've left and my sister have left our parents' home and I don't think that they should have to move out of their house because, you know, I, I mean, I really understand that that side of things of right sizing and downsizing, you know, that somebody who's been in uh, their their neighbourhood for decades would then leave and move somewhere else and perhaps not have a, a, a golden time there in, the, in their dotage, shall we say. <laughs> but I, I do I, I do understand what Bob Jordan is getting at in terms of you'll just have to expect lower house prices because... We have this really funny dynamic where we we bemoan the housing crisis and there's endless discourse on, you know, in media like this and on social media and papers and all the rest of it. But really, you're pitting society against property owners, people who have property and people who don't. As soon as you own a property, you do not want that value to go down. And so politicians sort of cry crocodile tears a bit on this as well. as soon as you want own a property, you want that to increase so that you can make your money off it. And I've noticed that even if you're not objecting to housing developments, which is, I think we might get to that at some point with the, the story um, that's adjacent to this in the Sunday Independent about UL, 
you have individuals and you have uh, letting agents and you have all these people who are the system is built around the maximum profit that they can make. And I had a relative who was bidding on a house recently and they they put in an offer. It went up incrementally a little bit and then no more bids and they wanted to close on it. But the estate agents wouldn't let them close and they went and they, you know, did a bit of jiggery pokery and managed to whip up a bit of a bidding war and three weeks later it closed for, I mean, the, the sum was insane. So... Are you going to tell property agents that they're going to have to, you know, and and, I, and the homeowners didn't say, no, that's enough. That's a reasonable amount to pay for this house. We've made our money back. They didn't say that. So I, I sort of understand what Bob Jordan is getting at. There is, a, a, there's an element of the system is set up around driving these prices, but there is, there's, there is at an individual level greed. But presumably, Pat Rabbit, this is a, a, a system solution that is required. We simply need more throughput and more delivery of homes and we need a planning process that is closer to being something rules-based rather than rooted in nimbyism. I think that's right. Um, I uh, don't understand how uh, anyone is going to reduce the average price of housing to 300,000. Uh, uh, if builders are whinging about not being able to build houses at the moment. I'd like to see what would happen if uh, that were to uh, come through. Uh, yes, Well, I assume this is rooted in Sinn Féin's policy of, of direct intervention from the state and that state provision would so significantly change the market that it would change the market forces on those builders. Well, the state would have to uh, contract builders to build the houses, the same builders. And, uh, you know... I think the, one of the big issues here is land. So uh, if, for example, Sinn Féin had said that they were going to build new houses at 300,000 each, maybe that has some credibility, but we haven't seen the, we haven't seen the detail. Uh, the planning process is a big obstacle to supply. And even though efforts have been made to correct it, it's still immensely slow. And the mess in on board Planola has uh, wreaked a very heavy price. Uh, there are so many developments uh, in the logjam in on board Planola. Um, and it, is that soluble? Is it one of those things where notionally it would be nice to have a faster planning perspective, but from a local political um, perspective, doing so would rob people of a sense of engagement and the capacity to be consulted and therefore nobody would accept it? Well, the minister and the government are struggling with that very issue. Uh, you know, you can't, uh, you can't walk on the rights of people uh, to complain, but objections are now the order of the day. Uh, and uh, politicians are enlisted uh, to support objections. All that has to happen in a constituency is one TD to set out reasons why the increasing traffic into a housing estate would be a bad thing. And the other TDs feel they have no option but to go along with it. And you have these objections. Middle-class residents associations in particular are expert at squeezing the tail of TDs to do what they want to do. And if they get one, peer pressure requires the other to follow them. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you should uh, attend. uh, I mean, some of the critics and uh, some economists that, you know, point quite correctly to the fact that it's an issue of supply. uh, They ought to come along to some of the meetings of the residents' associations 
uh, where TDs and councillors are in danger of being strung up uh, if they were to uh, go for a particular uh, housing development. And that is a problem. And the minister is struggling. How do you get a balance as between not trampling the rights of people uh, on the one hand, but ramping up supply on the other hand. Meanwhile, we have the issue, Aideen, that you were referring to, which is University of Limerick following Ryanair's example. Yeah, this is an incredible story. Um, Wayne O'Connor writing in the Sunday Independent that University of Limerick paid 12.58 million euro for 20 houses. So that averages at around €629,000 each, which is more than double what's typically paid in the area. Um, they did it last October. Six hundred grand each per 629000 each. So last year they paid €11.44 million, but then they had to pay uh, 10% stamp duty on that because of the 2021 laws that um, if you buy more than uh, 10 houses or you have to, you're subject to 10% stamp duty unless you're a local authority or an approved housing body. Um, so... The residents complained to Limerick City and County Council about that. Now, um, UL moved in postgrad and researchers into the, the properties and were later told then that they need planning permission for that. So a subsidiary company is to argue that the homes are being used as they were originally designed. Meanwhile, you have residents complaining about students moving in. Now, I, I presume that they were post-doc and researchers. So using 600,000 euro houses it, for student accommodation? In, yeah, in Limerick. Uh, so it's 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 quite like it it, it it's qu- like there's all sorts of questions now about the go- the governance because you know uh, the last month at UL admitted to overpaying for a city centre site that was about eight million euro and that, that apparently that was rushed through after normal approval processes were bypassed and that the 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 value of that was later written down as three million euro in UL's accounts. So certainly not not interrupting your flow, Aideen, but I think the state is regarded as a soft touch. Definitely. When, when it becomes known that the state is the bidder, uh, the price goes up. I, I have some familiarity in a different context with that uh, phenomenon. Yes. Oh, as in, so let me understand it. So that if you are selling and you realise that it's a state-backed entity that is purchasing, you are therefore aware that the, the pockets are unlimited in their debt. Precisely. How, how significant is this, Hugh, in terms of the, the oncoming next election, both locals and generals? I know it, it, it takes up a lot of common, column inches. Is it the big issue on the doorsteps? Housing. Yeah. I think it is, yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the big issues. I mean, obviously, you know, we'll talk about it later. Immigration has become a, a big issue as well. Um, you, know, you look at the exit poll from the last general election, health was top of, top of um, people's uh, concerns um, at, at that election. But housing remains an issue, I think, for, for a lot of people in a lot of different ways, whether it's, you know, getting getting their kids out of the house, whether it's their th- those kids' inability to get onto the housing ladder. And people look at stories like this and they just think, like, that, that that's insane. I mean, the, the, the fact that a house is, um, that the UL is paying €630,000 each for 20 student houses in an area where, you know, houses nor- typically sell at, at a fraction of that is just, it's astonishing. And they're a business university. And they're a business university, as, as Pat, Pat was saying earlier. So now, in their defence, I'm sure UL will say, needs must. We have to be mm. able to provide student accommodation. If we can't provide places for our students to live, we don't get students. In some cases, depending on where the students are from, they may be profitable yeah. students. Well, they're so saying, there is an, an, an... They're saying in this piece that the capital cost of the development will be fully recouped over medium time period given the rental income is being generated by the Plassey Campus Centre which own and manage UL's on-campus accommodation um, it, it talks about engaging with stakeholders and so on and so forth 
Um, but like uh, you know, as, as Aileen said, this isn't the first time you all have been in the news about uh, you know potentially overpaying. This there was this I think it's the site of the former Dunn stores in Limerick City, which they paid eight million for, and, and and it was written down as three million. It was a subject of significant criticism from the Public Accounts Committee. But um, but yeah, I mean it's. It's it's scandalous, really. You have that corporate governance issue yeah. that we're kind of discussing here, but then tangentially, and to bring it back around to what we were discussing, you have the residents who aren't... Uh, they, well, they are upset. The local residents are upset that that drives up the prices for the area and that they undersupply. But also most of the complaints... No, sorry, most of the complaints. A lot of them listed in the article here were that uh, there was the lack of amenities. They didn't like the look and feel of the development that it jarred with the yellow and red brick houses nearby, that there'd be antisocial behaviour um, and that uh, anywhere where students move in, families move out. Well, this goes to the thing of objections. Yes. If we have the issue that people feel I can't allow a housing or I want to stop a housing because it jars with the yellow and red bricks, it doesn't bode well for the capacity of us to get stuff built. Well, there you go. And so there's, there's two elements coming out of this story is that obviously the taxpayers' money and then again, objecting to housing. And I just thought this anywhere where students move in, families move out, it just was reminded me of like, you know, unvetted male students. Who's who's going to let them move in here? We're not the, letting them the, move the in. The other here. thing as well, and Pat was talking about it in terms of the politicians. I mean, there's this new thing that I've come across now where like, the, the, I don't think there's any formal um, way to object to a housing development in planning law. And often you have politicians who uh, make observations on on a development and they say that, um, you know, it's not in keeping with the area, it will drain services, there isn't the resources within that area, it's completely out of character, it's going to block sunlight and all of these things. And they will will never describe it as an objection and they will deny having made an objection. They will say that we're just observing uh, or or submitting uh, observations on this development. But to all intents and purposes, it it is an objection because they're basically saying that the the development as proposed would not work for the area. I hope uh, UL don't put in single males Mm. into those houses. (laughs) Well, this does bring us to the issue of immigration, which we do need. There's a a, a text just in saying, um, we have a supply issue for sure, but it has never been, quotes, easy to own your first home. Having worked hard for mine, I'm not prepared to suffer a recession or negative equity for the sake of a Quango or Sinn Féin policies when they are funded via our taxes enough. And that to some extent, Aideen, goes to what you're saying about there is there is quite the dichotomy between those who have themselves in a house and those who don't. Uh, Pat Ravage, you raised the issue of, of unvetted male students. This raises uh, unvetted male immigrants and how significant immigrants and immigration is becoming in uh, political terms. The front page of the Sunday Times says that the far right is going to target Sinn Féin seats because they feel that there is a softening in support for Sinn Féin among part of its demographic over the issue of immigration. We have seen a fall off in the last couple of polls in terms of um, Sinn Féin support uh, down from, I think, 37 to still a very strong 29. Um, How significant do you think the political rise of that kind of far right is? Well, I... I think Sinn Féin deserves credit uh, for holding the line on immigration. Uh, I know there have been wobbles uh, recently. As in remaining fairly positive towards it, is that what you mean? Uh, Yes, there was a kind of a bipartisan approach between government and opposition until recently. And uh, as I say, I, I think Sinn Féin should get credit for that, but... There does now appear to be uh, some wobbles. And John Mooney's uh, story on the front page of the uh, Sunday Times is, uh, is, is very interesting. 
uh, and uh, you know it, it looks like you can expect uh, far right uh, candidates in the general election masquerading as whatever, but essentially uh, dog whistling about immigration and so on. And uh, now, can I just ask on that because any time something along those lines gets said, we get a response that says, "Hold on a minute, it is not dog whistling to be concerned about." unavailability of school places. It's not dog whistling to be concerned about the only hotel in the town being taken over and the economic impact about that. It's not dog whistling to be concerned about the level of security that is in place with people who you don't know coming into your area. So there is, I would have thought, in there some legitimacy or is there not? There is some legitimacy. Uh, Communities have uh, an entitlement to put forward their views about uh, the strain on, on local services and uh, all that kind of thing. That, that That's perfectly reasonable and I think if you look at the Irish Times poll in particular, there are nuanced distinctions between people who come here genuinely fleeing persecution and seeking asylum and people that uh, a broad mass of people have concluded are economic migrants uh, seeking to better themselves and so on and that there needs to be a more efficient, effective and nuanced uh, policy on the part of the... Yeah, this was, uh, just in case you missed it, we were discussing it on the programme yesterday and obviously if you missed anything on the show yesterday you can get it uh, via podcast, but this is the Irish Times poll that said that while people had significant concerns about immigration into their areas and the uh, level of uh, resources available for immigrants, the overall view of immigration into the country was a positive one, which I was think an, that's an interesting point, paradox. You know, when you go through that poll, I think that's an important point and I think you know, government should be shored up uh, by that response and get about the business of uh, a quicker, speedier, more effective, nuanced um, uh, immigration policy. Well, uh, you, Pat Robin made reference to the um, uh, the John Mooney story in front of the Irish Times. The, the, the gentleman in question in the story is a man called Gavin Pepper, who is described as planning to run in this year's local elections and possibly target a dull seat in the next general election. And he is one of the people who is insisting, quotes, Ireland is full mm. when he's quizzed about his controversial views. Is he going to be the first of many that we see taking political office? Well, well, I think there's every possibility that a, that a, a number of uh, you know far right candidates or candidates espousing the views that, that Gavin Pepper is in, in the paper in the, in the Sunday Times today uh, would would win seats on on local authorities in in the the elections in June. Um, you know, now to what extent they are able to coalesce uh, will be interesting to see. I mean. You know, it seems to me that the far right has the, has the problem sometimes of, of the far left in that it's very difficult for them to get around a table and coalesce around uh, a specific set of principles and And from whom will they take votes? Well, the polling would indicate that they're at the moment they're taking a bit of, of Sinn Féin's vote um, because you can see that in the Irish Times poll, for example, and in the Ireland Thinks poll in, in my own paper last weekend, um, that Sinn Féin... Uh, voters, the supporters' concerns about immigration um, are, are very much out of whack with the party's position. I mean, I think the figure in um, the Irish Times yesterday was stark. 72% of Sinn Féin voters, it might even be a little bit more than that, uh, think that we should have a more closed immigration system. Um, and, you know, Pat's right. You know, there's, there, I suppose there's some credit due to, to Marilyn MacDonald and Sinn Féin for holding the line on that. But this will prompt calls for thought, I think, in Sinn Féin as to how to adapt to this, to the fact that a lot of our supporters uh, think and feel this way about migration in this country. 
And it would be interesting to see whether that is aligned with Sinn Féin hardening their policy a little bit. I mean, you know, they, they have, to my mind, been a bit all over the place about, you know, what would happen in respect of uh, Ukrainian refugees in this country when the Temporary Protection direction, Directive excuse me, expires next March. Um, that entitles Ukrainian refugees to, um, to to the same freedoms and rights as as, as EU citizens. Um, they have suggested, I think, that these people will be put into the, the international the direct provision system effectively. Um, but all all of that will be thrashed out, I guess, over over the next year or so. But um, I think that's so, so. So to get back to your question, I think that's that's where they're going to get take the votes from potentially. Uh, people who don't feel that Sinn Féin is speaking for them on this issue and they, they feel that these candidates do. I asked earlier on whether or not you thought this was going to be a significant issue on the doorsteps. If, if the text response is anything to mm. go by, your view that it, it will be definitely one of the main ones is, mm. is held out. Anton, we are in our 60s. Hubby has Parkinson's, so we need two bedrooms, a garden, as we are mentally and physically are trying to keep healthy. He loves his books and uh, me, my art, etc., we have worked hard since very young and now want to enjoy our average-sized home. Apart from that, there are none in our area to move to. I refuse to move into a box. We will be in one of those for infinity. Um, and then in respect of the UL story, more exclamation marks and question marks than I've seen in print in quite some time. Did I really hear that UL story writes as a text? A taxpayer-funded body which has had a number of questionable governance issues in recent years just went ahead and bought a scatter of houses in block at twice market value. Seriously, who the hell is watching our public specter spend our money? That story can't be true. Aidan, I have to be clear on this. It isn't twice market value. It's twice market average price. These are yes, very yes, sorry, nice houses. Yes, yeah. They may have done a good deal on them. It's just... They happen to be, what did you say, 629,000 euro each. After the break, um, uh, like the, the way housing is, is becoming a hardy perennial, which must be discussed every week. Likewise, RTE has become a, a hardy perennial. The issues pertaining to all of the various different uh, scandals, the latest being reported on in the Mail on Sunday is that issue of bogus freelancers. So people who are required to say that they are self-employed and to bill as if they're self-employed, but who are waddling and quacking like employees. That's the latest. And meanwhile, there is the issue to how to cure the licence fee, which, if I remember correctly, Pat Rabbit had an answer to back in 2013. So we will find out what has happened in the intervening decade or so after this. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PwC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk. And I'm joined by Aideen Finnegan, who is audio producer with the Irish Times, Hugh O'Connell, who is deputy political editor at the Irish Times, and uh, sorry, Hugh, I apologise at many different levels, deputy (laughs) political editor at the Irish Independent, and Pat Rabbit, who is uh, chairperson of Tusla, former leader of the Labour Party and former Minister for Communications, which meant that there was a point when he was the man responsible for the licence fee. And if I recall, you brought a proposal to government back in 2013 that said, right, lads, the licence fee is bunched. It isn't going to work in a modern digital age. We need to do something else, and it's called a media charge. What happened? Uh, The water charges protests. That's what happened. Uh, After that particular experience... Uh, it was unthinkable that another charge would go ahead. And I think the situation that, uh, uh, you know, 10 years have elapsed since then and and nothing has happened. And, you know, I'm convinced that public service broadcasting is a public good. I acknowledge that there is public uh, service content done 
by other stations and by local stations, and that the local stations, in my proposal, would have had some access to a bigger sound and vision fund uh, at that at that time. But can I ask, Pat, it, obviously we have been precipitated into this discussion by the recent crisis and the, the falling off of a cliff in the licence fee payment, but I assume that over the last 10 years, none of this went away. This was still a chronic issue that we knew would have to be dealt with at some point. This bandage had to come off. No, that's absolutely true, and it's uh, amazing that it was never dealt with. I mean, the saga now is running longer than the mousetrap, uh, and it seems to me that it's going to do serious damage uh, to RTE, and now you have an election year, and those committees are going to have a feast between now and polling day, as uh, little things keep uh, tumbling out uh, from the closet in RTE. And the committees in question being, of course, the Oireachtas Media Committee, in in front of whom the uh, RTE will be sending representatives this week, and the Public Accounts Committee. And the latest thing that's being mentioned, Aideen, is the Mail is covering this, another €20 million hole for RTE. This is a possibility that they may be on the hook for PAYE, PRSI, all of that stuff related to bogus... Um, self-employment contract. Yes, yeah, so it, it was ruled that uh, RTE had illegally classed 695 employees as freelancers. And so that meant that they weren't getting sick pay, pension, you know, pensions, holidays, maternity leave. And then now, lo and behold, well, if you've treated them all this time as employees, they are de facto employees. So now they're on the hook for all that um, that back pay, essentially. And the Oireachtas Committee has heard that they've put aside 20 million euro. Um, but the Oireachtas Committee... Media RTE has already put aside 20 million to, 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 to put aside 20 million for it. And Neve Smith, the chair of the Oireachtas Media Committee, is saying, is that not your best case scenario? Because is this not going to cost well in, in advance of that. And is RTE going to need a bailout? And then we need to know that figure before that happens. And Catherine Martin, the, the Minister for Media, was saying, I can't get involved in that. That's not, that's not my remit. And the Oireachtas Committee going, well, well, RTE has sort of abdicated their responsibilities for these people and told, basically, we'll see you in court if, you know, you want, you want I, it. I, I think before Hugh comes in that the time has... I, I've forgotten the name of the instrument, but the time has come for one or other of the committees, and I don't see the need for competing committees, that one of the committees should apply for the facility that is there in respect of compelability and require the former chief executive to present. I don't see how you can bring this saga to an end until we hear from the former chief executive. And what happens when you get from the DG a sick note? Well, uh, at least, uh, you know, we would know then what is the illness that's an obstacle to appearing. Uh, I don't know what the illness is, and I had hoped when it initially happened that it would have cleared up by now. Uh, But, you know, you can't bring this saga to an end. And there is a danger that there's an element of Schadenfreude uh, about the politician's approach uh, to it. Uh, there are s- if you were at the time, if you go back to being minister, if you knew that you were presiding over a situation where you had 2.2 million gone for apparently no oversight on the, the musical, where you had a willful act to deceive and to de- not to disclose information in relation to salaries so that they looked smaller than they actually were, and where you discovered that you had um, voluntary redundancies that were being done apparently outside the scheme, what would you be doing with the DG and the former um, chairman? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Uh you know, the the traditional attitude has been that 
uh, we set up a very prestigious RTE authority and it was its job to run the station. Uh, and, uh, you know, those appointments were regarded as prestigious appointments uh, to an RTE authority where the uh, director general is also the editor in chief. And, uh, you know, that those decisions would be made competently and in accordance with good governance. But quite clearly, there are so many things uh, happening uh, that have come to light is that the last thing that obtained was good governance and uh, the managerial competence at the top was even more feeble than the governance. There clearly was um, there clearly was an unofficial board, um, uh, management board or whatever they called it, that uh, involved a small number of individuals who were making the decisions and they only told the board, they only told the authority what they wanted to hear. And it, doesn't, it, it appears there was nobody on the authority who wanted to know too much. And uh, unless the chief executive, the former um, uh, uh, director general, appears and deals with some of those issues, I don't see how you can bring it to an end and it's going to do awful damage to RTE and that is not in society's interest, in my opinion. And just to say that the authority being the, the um, title for the board up to, I think, about what 2011 there, thereabouts, but synonymous with and is, is now the same thing as, as the overall board. Hugh, the, the point that Pat was making in respect of the media committee, are the, are the TDs going to continue to have a field day with this? Is this Christmas? Yeah, well, they have more hearings on Wednesday, I think, and they've asked lots of people to come in, including current and former board members. Um, Pat's right. I mean, the issue is we have not heard from Dee Forbes since this country, bar a, a brief statement outlining uh, her resignation. Although her solicitors have now said that they will provide in-confidence yeah. medical evidence. So, so that's, so she's that's the latest issue because um, the media committee, the Oireachtas Media Committee, has said that it will um, it will seek powers to compel um, Dee Forbes to appear before it. And they, uh, lawyers for uh, Ms Forbes have said that they're unable to, she's unable to appear for medical reasons and they will provide in-confidence, you know, the medical and... and uh, psychological care, details of the medical and psychological care that she is receiving. I mean, this is, we are told this has restricted her from even um, cooperating with some of the uh, other reports that have been carried out in, in towards the, the report on um, voluntary exit agreements and obviously the, the questions around the, the exit agreements, um, the, the golden handshake for the former chief financial officer and, and Dee Forbes's role in that. So there's so many questions for Dee Forbes and so, so much that people want to know about what she did and why she did it. Um, but it appears for the time being, because of her illness, um, we will not be hearing from her. We do need to talk about uh, Donald Trump's uh, most recent extraordinary statement. And I, I know it is like the boy who cried wolf. It is, it is easy to become uh, weary of Donald Trump's extraordinary statement. But even by his standards, this one is fairly extraordinary. Before we get to that, one final thing on this, Pat. The... When, back in 2013, you went to Cabinet with a suggestion, your suggestion was immediate charge. It seems now that the mood music is to go a different way and to simply fund it directly from the Exchequer. You didn't think that was the way to go, do you now? I, I didn't. I, I didn't think uh, that it was a good idea to have the station going hand uh, uh, with the begging bowl uh, to the politicians from time to time to get more resources. I mean, it seemed to me to, to uh, you know, beg uh, the kind of intervention by government that is not desirable. And the, the government, the present government, seems divided on it. Uh, I, if I read what Micheál Martin has said, I think 
he he continues to believe, like I do, that uh, some form of broadcasting charge, uh, you know, is, is the way to go. The, the The bigger issue is actually collection. You know, back uh, when I was dealing with it, the collection, the efficacy of the collection system wasn't under quite the same strain as it is now. And what happened in RTE last summer uh, has meant that the collection system is now less reliable uh, than it was. And of course, there's a certain irony to relying on the organisation for collection run by the man you so egregiously snubbed during the recruitment process. Exactly. The... um, uh, the reaction, I think, uh, the reaction now uh, to... I, I had uh, tentative discussions with the revenue commissioners, but their attitude then, in any event, was that we are a tax collection yeah. agency. Our job is not to collect that's, utility that's charges. still their attitude now, I think. And ultimately, there'd have to be a change in the law by the finance minister of the day, I think, to give them powers over the, the collection of a They're media very charge good devices. at it, though. If there's well, one thing are. revenue do and well, look, it's revenue, scaring you Revenue will do what government asks them to do and what government legislates for them to do. So I don't think that would be an issue. I mean, I think the suggestion coming from, particularly from the Fianna Fáil side, you see, and there is an agreement on this within the government because you know, the media minister, Catherine Martin, has said she wants the exchequer option looked at. Um, I reported a couple of weeks ago that Leo Varadkar was of, of a similar mind and, and would prefer that option. Um, although he hasn't really stated publicly his, his position. Um, but the Fianna Fáil side of government is arguing that uh, it needs to be a charge, get revenue to collect it, reduce it because you increase compliance, which will make up the difference, um, and, and you, you solidify that in legislation. Let us look to events across the water. Donald Trump now significantly committed to his time on the campaign trail when he's not in court and he was uh, speaking at a rally in South Carolina and he went to one of his regular uh, areas of... Uh, grief and complaint, which is the funding of NATO. And he decided to get into how he would leverage other NATO members into paying more in the way of their contribution to the organization. And here's what he said. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. So that's a former president of the United States saying that he would happily breach the conditions on which the North Atlantic Treaty Organization operates and that he would happily see uh, an enemy state uh, invade a NATO member. It's incredible, really, because, I mean... The, the, all, it used to be that he, he thought Putin was a great guy and now he doesn't even need to, to bother cozying up to anyone. He can just say these random things. And, you know, if, uh, it's funny as well, because uh, if you didn't pay, he's on the hook for quite a lot of stuff he didn't pay, isn't he? <laughs> it, it is easy to dismiss it because we hear it so much and to think it is therefore meaningless. But it's not, Pat. Sure, it's not. It matters. Well, it's profoundly scary that this man has the prospect of being returned to the White House. I mean, on the last occasion, he had no idea of what he had got himself into. He knew nothing about governing. He didn't have a staff or people available to him to appoint to critical positions. But now there is a gang of zealots around Mm. him who have worked out the things they are going to do 
if he is re-elected. And it is profoundly disturbing. And Aideen's point, uh, this is a man who didn't pay his own workers uh, and his own contractors. And uh, he now thinks that's a, a reason for... And do you think his prospects are good? Do you think... Because obviously we haven't seen Joe Biden actually campaign yet. We haven't seen issues like the repeal of Roe versus Wade and Donald Trump being responsible for that. There are a lot of wedge issues and there is a record that wasn't there previously that has yet to come into the discourse. Is, is that going to have an effect? I think it's possible. Uh, it's possible. I mean, Joe Biden is not in the United States getting any credit for the economy. Uh, he has turned the economy around and it's doing very well. Uh, he has made other reforms, but uh, he's not getting the credit for it. The um, the war in Ukraine and the cost of living and all that kind of thing is what's in the minds of... And you can see what the implications are for Ukraine. I mean, he has made no secret of what he's going to do uh, in, the, in the event that he, he's president again. And I think... The most outrageous thing he has done is the agreement that was worked out after weeks between Republicans and Democrats to fund the state and in the process to release the monies to Ukraine. And the the Republicans got their way by demanding that similar monies would have to be released for migration, wall building ball, border and, wall. and all the rest. That was agreed and Trump decided this is bad for me because I won't be able to continue to hammer away at this until polling day. So he has stopped it. But that's politics, Pat. Uh, Of a destructive nature in a big country that has such implications for global peace that we've never seen before. I think the dog whistle about NATO as well is interesting because obviously Putin, uh, that's in Putin's interest to stay in power, to to keep Trump in power. And so what sort of Russian interference in the elections might we expect this time? Hugh, you spend a lot of time analysing politics. Give us, <coughs> give us a final call on this. Is he going to make it? Trump? Yeah. It's very hard to tell. I mean, I think the, the most significant thing that happened this week was this special prosecutor's um, report into Joe Biden's uh, keeping classified documents in his home and the conclusion, this was a, a Republican appointed by Donald Trump, but ultimately the conclusion that um, there weren't grants to prosecute Biden primarily because he wouldn't be uh, very good on the stand and, and describing because him he... as a, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory and some very damaging details around his inability to remember exactly when he was vice president, his inability to remember exactly when his, his son, Bo Biden, died, uh, which which Biden took grave uh, offence to. Um, and then, you know, a string of gaffes in recent weeks, um, thinking that uh, Francois Mitterrand was the French president, uh, Helmut Kohl, uh, you know, mixing up Helmut Kohl, I think, with Angela Merkel. Helmut Kohl had been dead uh, seven years. Um, he referred to uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi as the leader of Mexico. He's the, the leader of, of Egypt. All of these things have traction and currency and bolster the idea that Joe Biden is too old to run for the White House, uh, again, for, for the White House. Donald Trump has 40% of the American electorate locked in, I think, um, but the, and the way in which the complex electoral college works is that that could be sufficient to get him over the line. Um, Joe Biden is probably, at the moment, the only candidate who can beat him. He beat him in 2020. Um, but but th- like these, these, this report this week and, and, and Biden's you know, showing his age in a very, very ob- obvious way is going to be really damaging, I think, to his prospects of re-election. So look, it's, it's all to play for. It's hard to call. It's going to be an interesting year.
You. Thank you very much. Likewise, thank you to Aideen and thank you to Pat. That being Hugh O'Connell, Deputy Political Editor at the Irish Independent. Aideen Finnegan, uh, audio producer with the Irish Times and Pat Rabbit, Chairperson of Tusla. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PwC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk.